Isaiah chapter 52. We'll begin reading at verse 13 and we'll go into chapter 53 to verse 6. The section of the book of Isaiah makes up the so-called servant songs. There's a number of passages here which refer to the servant of the Lord. It's pointing ahead to Christ as the Messiah. So Isaiah 52 at verse 13, listen to the holy and infallible word of God. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of God. May he bless it for each one of us here this afternoon. Let's sing together again. Let's sing together Psalm 40, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
my congregation at the Free Reformed Church of Launceston, I've been doing a series of sermons on the gospel according to John. And recently we were at John 12, 20 to 26. So that's the sermon I'm going to preach for you this afternoon. Let's turn there in the gospel according to John, John chapter 12. And we'll read those verses, verses 20 to 26. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Beloved Congregation of Christ, as I just mentioned a moment ago, I'm currently serving the Free Reform Church in Launceston, which is in Tasmania, the smallest state of Australia. But way back in 2006, I was uh, further down the Fraser Valley. I was pastor of the church at one of the pastors of the church at Langley, and during that time period, our church had a twin relationship with the Escondido United Reformed Church. And as part of that, 
I ended up preaching at that church, the United Reformed Church in Escondido, just outside of San Diego. And something kind of interesting happened. Something struck me. Now, from the vantage point of the congregation, from where everybody in the congregation was sitting, the pulpit looked just like any other. But from where I was standing as the preacher, there was something different. There was something that I'd never seen before. You see, on the back of the pulpit, visible only to the preacher, was a small gold plate with these words engraved on it. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And of course, of course, those words come from verse 21 in our passage this morning. And I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, that's a great reminder to every preacher. Christians gathered for worship can be expected to want to see Jesus. And every preacher has a responsibility to help the congregation see him. But let me ask you, did you come here this afternoon to see Jesus? If you didn't see him today, would you go home disappointed? But that raises another question, doesn't it? What does it mean for us to see Jesus? After all, he's not physically present here on this earth. You can't see him the same way that you can see me standing here in front of you. Well, in our passage from John this afternoon, there were people wanting to see Jesus, and they wanted to see him in that physical way. And it's rather intriguing that Jesus doesn't seem to grant their request. Instead, he goes on to speak about what's about to happen to him. And when he does that, he's telling them and everyone that if they really want to have a meaningful encounter with him, they have to direct their attention to what's important about him. And so the theme of the sermon this afternoon is to really see Jesus focus on his glory. And we'll consider the nature of his glory, the response to his glory, and the honor for his glory. Well, just to situate us where we are here in the gospel according to John, we're in the last week of the life of Jesus before the cross. It's the time of a special feast known as the Passover. This feast commemorated the exodus from Egypt that took place during the days of Moses. Jewish people from all over the world traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate this great feast. And in the previous verses, Jesus was entering into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And as he did that, the crowds hailed him as the king who they thought was going to overthrow the Romans. And this commotion caught the attention of the Jewish religious leaders. If you look at verse 19, you'll hear them complaining how the whole world has gone after him. When they said that, they said more truth than they realized. The world really was going after Jesus. And this was proven by what had happened with some Greeks. Most likely, these people were Greek-speaking Gentiles. They could have come from far away. 
But there were also Greek-speaking Gentile populations relatively close to Judea. They were probably people who were God-fearing Gentiles who hadn't been circumcised. They were like Cornelius, the Roman centurion in Acts 10, who was described as a devout man who feared God with all his household. Well, these God-fearing Greeks had somehow heard about Jesus, and they were interested in meeting him face to face. And so they went to Philip, one of the disciples. Well, why did they go to Philip? Well, Bethsaida in Galilee had a large population of Greek speakers in it, nearby too. So Philip would have been fluent in Greek. It was natural for them to approach him. And they said to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. We're not told why they wanted to meet him face to face, nor do we hear anything more about them after this. Philip goes with Andrew to tell Jesus, and then the Greeks, they just seem to disappear from the scene. Did they get to meet Jesus? The Bible doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us here. It doesn't tell us anywhere else. Now we're at verse 23. And Jesus' reply to Philip and Andrew seems to sidestep the request of the Greeks. It may seem like he's distracted and he's speaking about something totally disconnected from that request. However, the reality is that he's revealing how those Greeks and everyone else after them needs to really see him. It's like he's saying, they want to meet me? Well, this is how they and anyone else can really meet me and get to know me. In John's Gospel prior to this, Jesus had said several times that his hour had not yet come. But now... Suddenly, that's changed. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It says in verse 23. Now when Jesus says the hour, He doesn't mean you know, literally a period of 60 minutes. The hour here means the time. The time has come for Him, the Son of Man, to be glorified. It doesn't mean it's going to happen that day, but in this approximate time period, in the next few days, as it turns out. Well, the bigger question is what it means for Jesus to be glorified. What is this glory that He's going to receive? Well, verse 24 answers that question for us. Here, Jesus uses an agricultural image. You have a seed. And if that seed just stays in the palm of your hand, or wherever else, nothing comes from it. Absolutely nothing. It does nothing. But if it falls into the earth, and it disappears, dies, so to speak, it'll sprout and eventually produce even more grain. But in order for that to happen, it must die. It must disappear. There must be death on the way to fruitfulness. 
Jesus is speaking here about the cross. The cross is his glory. Isaiah saw it from afar. In Isaiah 52, the Holy Spirit said that God's servant would be high and lifted up. Jesus would be literally lifted up on a cross. Isaiah went on to speak of how the servant would be disfigured so badly that he would barely look human. Jesus was first beaten by the Sanhedrin and then brutalized by the Roman soldiers in the Praetorium. In chapter 53 of Isaiah, we read of him being pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, afflicted, and finally slain. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus at the cross. But how can all of that be glorious? How can all this suffering, this horrible suffering, and this horrific death, how can that be glory for Jesus? It seems upside down. It's paradoxical. This suffering isn't glorious. If you're suffering in some way, you're not going to think of it as being glorious. Oh, my glorious suffering. And yet for Jesus, it is. The cross is His glory. Well, what's glorious about it? Well, there's a lot that could be said about that. Books have been written about that. Let's just focus on two aspects of the glory of the cross. One, working from our text here, one is that it bears much fruit. Jesus' death on the cross is fruitful. It accomplishes much. After all, it brings redemption. It brings the forgiveness of sins. It brings reconciliation between God and sinners. It brings many sinners into fellowship with the Holy God. Though it involves horrific violence and bloodshed and death, the cross bears much fruit. The cross brings peace and healing to many, to those who believe. And the other way the cross is glorious is this. There's no greater display of love in the Bible or in the history of the world. In His love, the Son of God agreed to come into this world to die the death we deserve For our sins. In his love, the King of glory set aside his majesty to be humiliated by his own wicked, traitorous subjects. In his love, the Creator came to be crucified by his creatures. And he did it all because of love. Do you see the glory yet? You see it? And we can go further. When we say that the cross is glorious because it displays the greatest love the world has ever known, we also have to think about who it was that was loved. Brothers and sisters, 
The heart of Jesus is so large that it lovingly carried the names, the individual names of every single Christian. When Jesus suffered and died on the cross, He did it out of love for individual human beings. If you've placed your trust in Him, you can be sure your name was on His heart. He was doing it because He loved you. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that glorious? And remember that this Savior who died on the cross, He's God. That means He is and always has been omniscient. Omniscient means that He's all-knowing. He knows everything. So think about this with me now. Since He's God, Jesus knew well in advance what every single detail of your life and my life would look like. He knew every lie you'd tell. Jesus knew every piece of gossip you'd share. He knew every idol you'd worship. Every wrong desire you'd ever have. He knows about the sins you haven't even committed yet. Sins you're going to commit this week. He knows everything. And He's known it all along. He knew it before the cross. And yet He loved you. He still loves you. And He will love you forever. Paul Washer once said, I have given Christ countless reasons not to love me. None of them changed His mind. Let that sink in. I've given Christ countless reasons not to love me. None of them changed His mind. Let that sink in with an eye to the cross too. Because He's omniscient, all-knowing, looking into the future, I gave Christ already back then countless reasons not to love me. I gave Him countless reasons not to love me at the cross. None of them changed His mind. If you see that great, undeserved love, you see the glory of the cross. And you really do encounter Jesus. You really do see Him in all His beauty and wonder. We're now at verse 25. And here Jesus is speaking partly about Himself and partly about His followers. If Jesus had been selfish and only cared about Himself, He would have defeated the whole purpose for His coming into the world. He says, whoever loves his life will lose it. The word loses can also be translated as destroys. You destroy your life by making the ultimate purpose of your life yourself. Your self-interest and your own self-preservation. But if you keep everything in the right perspective, eternal life is the outcome. 
He says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus isn't saying that he hated his life or that we should literally hate our lives. This was a way of speaking in those times. What he means is that your attitude towards your life should be such that it's obvious that you don't make it ultimate. When you make your life ultimate, you love it, but you end up destroying it. When you don't make your life ultimate, you hate it, but it's kept safe into eternity. Jesus didn't make his life ultimate. He knew there was something far more important than keeping his heart beating. And that was to love us by following the plan he'd agreed upon with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now, as we understand how Jesus did that, as we see his glory in that, that also shapes our response. Verse 25 isn't only about Jesus. It's also about those who've seen Him through His glory and how they, in turn, respond. And here I want to introduce you to a word that might be new to you. Cruciform. Cruciform. You know the word crucify already. To crucify is to kill someone by hanging them on a cross. Well, the word cruciform means that something takes the form of a cross. It's cross-shaped. The life of a true follower of Jesus is supposed to be cruciform. Our lives are supposed to be cross-shaped. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 25 and 26 when it comes to our response to His glory. Listen. If you're a Christian then Jesus is your master. He's your master. And you're a disciple. You're like an apprentice for Him. And part of being a disciple is becoming more and more like Him. His life, the life of Jesus, was cruciform. It's cross-shaped. It was all about humiliation and suffering leading up to the cross. Jesus didn't love his life, didn't make it ultimate. Instead, he lived, he died for something far greater. Now, as we see this, he says, our lives are to be like his. If you're a disciple of Jesus, focus on his glory, which is the cross. And then let the cross shape your life too. Well, what does that mean in concrete terms? Well, it means crucifixion. There's got to be crucifixion in your life. And we're talking about the crucifixion of your old nature. That means killing what remains of sin in your heart. Loved ones, by nature, we're selfish. We're self-centered. By nature, we love our lives. 
I naturally make me and I make my life ultimate. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, get over yourself. And I hear that and I say, I've got to learn that my life isn't about me. I have something far greater to live for. I'm here to live for God's glory by living in God's ways. I love God. I love my Savior. And I want to live for Him. I want Him at the center of my life. I want Him as ultimate. Not me. And that's where a cruciform life of discipleship begins. And make no mistake about it, that's going to be painful at times. Denying yourself, killing your sinful desires, especially that desire to have you in the center of your life, that's not easy. But it's worth it. When you put you at the center, the end result is loss and destruction. When you have Christ at the center of your life, the end result is life. Life in fellowship with God forever. Perhaps there's someone here this afternoon who still needs to learn this lesson. Well, here you are this afternoon and and God is addressing you. Christ is speaking to you. He's saying, look at my glory on the cross. Look at my great love for sinners. If you see that and you see how beautiful it is, why? Why love your life only to lose it? What's the point of putting yourself in the center when in the end it's the worst thing that you could have done? Instead, Jesus says, have me at the center of your life and you'll really have life. Life that lasts forever in joy and peace. And brothers and sisters, again, this cruciform life of discipleship is far from easy. But it will always be worth it. Jesus says in verse 26 that if we're intent on serving Him, we have to follow Him. If we say we're His disciples then we have to act like His disciples. So in every situation of life, we want to grow in being conscientious about who we are as disciples of Jesus. For example, think about your daily work. What does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus here at work? If Jesus were doing my job how would He be doing it differently than the way I do it? In your family life, what does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus as I relate to my spouse? As I relate to my children? Or if you're a child, as you relate to your parents? How would Jesus do it? For the kids... I know you guys are on summer vacation right now, but school is going to start soon enough. The summers always go by so quickly, and I remember that well. And soon enough, you'll be back at school. 
And when you're there, ask yourself, what does it mean for me to be a disciple of Jesus in the classroom? Or as I interact with other students at lunchtime or recess? Jesus promises those who are truly His disciples that they'll be where He is. That's at the end of verse 26. And where I am, my servant will also be. When we die, or when Christ returns, we will be with Him. And we will see His glory. We will see Him in His post-crucifixion splendor. We're going to be in His presence forever. And that's meant to motivate us to do two things right now already. One is to see Jesus as we can right now. To meet Him, so to speak, by focusing on His glory. Right? So keep your eye on the cross each day. And the other is to follow Him as His disciples, to live as He lived on this earth. You've got to remember what the best thing is about heaven. What is the best thing about heaven? Is it being without pain? Well, that's good. But it's not the best thing. Is the best thing about heaven being without grief? Being without a broken heart? Being without hurt? Again, those are all good things about heaven, but it's still not the best thing for a Christian. Is the best thing about heaven being without sin? Again, great, but not the best. So what is the best thing about heaven for a Christian? It's being with Christ. Being able to have the closest, the most intimate communion with Him that we possibly can. That we can be close to the One we love, to the One who's loved us. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin once said, Heaven would be hell to me without Christ. Heaven would be hell to me without Christ. Can you relate to that? The best thing about heaven is eternal life with Jesus. That's what we have to look forward to as we live this cruciform life now. Just as our Master we go through suffering. We go through crucifixion. There's the crucifying of our old nature. But at the end, at the end, there's glory waiting through suffering to glory with Jesus. We're now at the last sentence of verse 26. And here Jesus speaks about honor. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The person who serves Jesus here is a disciple. It's a believer. He or she has a relationship with Jesus. And to understand the Father's honor for such a person, we first have to look to Jesus and how and why the Father honors Him. After Jesus 
has offered His life on the cross for sinners in love. The Father honors Him. On the third day after the cross, the Father brings life to the dead body of His Son. The hands that had been nailed to the cross, they began moving again. The eyelids that had been crusted with blood from the crown of thorns, those eyelids, they suddenly popped open. The heart which had been starved of oxygen began thumping and pumping blood again. When Jesus was raised from the dead, when all that happened, the Father honored Him. With this resurrection life, He showed that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted. It was worthy and pleasing to God. And then 40 days later, Jesus ascended into heaven and took His place at the right hand of God. The right hand. That's the place of honor in heaven. And brothers and sisters, when you're a true disciple of Jesus, when you serve and follow Him, there's honor waiting for you too. You have a cross to carry in this life. It's the cross of discipleship, of dying to yourself. But God promises honor. He does. God promises the honor of resurrection. Just like He did with Jesus, He will raise you up. And there's a place of honor for you in heaven where Jesus is too. You'll have the great honor of living with your God forever in communion. And this honor has been won for you by Jesus. We shouldn't think of it as a quid pro quo, a tit-for-tat arrangement. As if it's a matter of, I serve Jesus, the Father repays me with honor. It's not like that. No, the honor comes to you through Christ. Through His glory on the cross. Through the glory of His resurrection. It's all based on what Christ has done. It comes to you through your union with Christ. It's a gift of God's grace. You receive this gift through faith. A faith which then follows Jesus as a servant, as a disciple. Ultimately, the Father's honor for us as Christ's servants is a gift of grace. He doesn't owe it to us, but He does promise it. And that promise is meant to stir us to service of our Lord. So brothers and sisters, Have you seen Jesus this afternoon? Have you had an encounter with Him? If you've seen His glory, if you've seen the glory of the cross, then truly you have. The glory of what Christ has done for us on the cross then inspires and motivates us to live cruciform lives as His disciples. Putting sin to death. Putting our selfish attitudes to death. We love Him who first loved us. And then we live in love as He loved. And as we do that, the whole purpose of this life that we have here, it all comes into focus. Living, not for our glory, but for His. And as we live as disciples of Jesus, the end result, it too comes into focus. 
honor and glory in eternity with our Lord Jesus. And that's something to really look forward to. Amen.